0: Paul Darbazi. Good morning. Maybe, ladies and gentlemen,
1: good morning, man. Look at your fancy setups. I feel
0: so low budget here. I just have the microphone on my laptop. That's the idea. It's all about the intimidation. Let the games <laughs> begin. We're one point for Originative, one point uh, zero for Ludic Learning.
1: No. I <laughs> like it. I like it. We're keeping score.
0: Yeah. So what you got in your cup this morning?
1: Well, we have um, our studio has a contract with um, with the German government, their their development agency, and we're creating a game uh, for Afghanistan to 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 support reforestation in Afghanistan. And the game is dedicated to NGOs that are working in Afghanistan, you know, with Afghanis and to help them sort of simulate what a reforestation process might look like in a village. So that's been crazy. Like we've just been, you know, trying to get all the game documents together, getting all the art right, getting the programmers programming. And so it's been a full-time thing.
0: Paul, uh, uh, I think you're taking this gaming thing way too serious. I know that I was winning um, this morning, but you just like, that's like 10 goals for you. So it's 10 to one. If you could just just touch that, like, you know, like, let's not pretend like this is a game of Chile against Trinidad and Tobago. Just go easy on us. Like, let's make it more like Chile versus Germany as we move into things. All jokes aside. Okay, we're working on a
1: we're working on a slightly enhanced tic tac toe uh, game now. <laughs> uh, we're using we're using crayons to create the lines to add a little extra color and, oh. and uh, yeah, and we're using squares and circles instead of X's and O's to really kind of you know give it a new flavor, re <laughs> reinvent tic tac toe.
0: That's fascinating, though. Um, so so when you're when you're sharing all of that, you're working with the team right from home um, and hmm. you've just met with them this morning and you're coming out of that. Tell us a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So not, not uh, this morning I was working alone. Um, what I'm going through now is initially when you, when it's, it's a simulation game, right? So it's a numbers game. Uh, and there are lots of variables. So we have charts on, on spreadsheets, which is new to me in my you know previous game design life. It was much more uh, kind of, pack together and 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 very homemade DYI. this is this is uh, forcing me to be a little bit more professional in my practice So the kinds of things that I'm doing is thinking, okay, uh, you know, our game has what are called green points, right? So you want to get as many green points as possible as you start planting more things and making moves in the game that are moving towards improving the greenery, improving, you know, the, the forestation, all that type of thing. And the consequence to the, to the community is that the more trees you plant, the more you mitigate the damage of floods and droughts and floods and droughts have, have absolutely been, devastating to the Afghans particularly in the last 10 years and one of the ways to mitigate that is by planting trees and they're only down to about 2% of uh, forested land now because of you know all kinds of different factors that reduce forestation. So I sit there with a spreadsheet and I say, okay, if you plant a tree, you get five green points. If you build a canal, you get two green points. If you blah, 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 blah. So I think about all the different factors that could contribute to green points. And then we throw those numbers off to a programmer and she bakes that into all the other stuff she's doing. And then we play through and then we see. okay, is this making sense? Are you getting too many green points for this? Or do we have to calibrate and balance? So with a game like this in particular, there's a lot of numbers involved. So we're just constant and it's all a balancing act. Like everything has to work smoothly. So you make your best estimate on paper, you put it into the game and then inevitably it's not going to work as well as you think it will, or you hope it will, Mm -hmm. and then you start adjusting the numbers accordingly to try to create a smoother play experience for the player.
0: Right. And our um, sounds fascinating. There's already just with that so much to talk about this morning. Um, Are we are what's what like help me understand a little bit of the timeline Of a project such as this, like going back to inception, um, then into like the pitch, and right now it's already well under its way in terms of being, you know, I'm I would assume there's funding uh, taking place, and and therefore you can play out this idea, Um, and then you said later on it will go into the actual, you know, development of the game, Mm -hmm. Uh, and there then the 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 trying it out. Right, Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 so, what what do those timelines look like? Are we talking about a?
1: Yeah,
0: it's such a great question.
1: So the origin story, when we're getting going to the misty dawn of this of this whole project um we my partner was alerted to the fact that that this agency that's funded by the German government they do it development work all over the world they create schools for women they support irrigation in Egypt like it's it's basically when the German government allots a huge amount of money for international development and a lot of it goes to this kind of sub-organization that manages all the projects the project that this is part of is a larger three or four year reforestation project that the Germans had started before for the Taliban took back over. And that obviously completely changed it for them. And they've had to adapt to the new Taliban regime being in power by trying to implement these ideas. And a lot of it is being done remotely through the present NGOs. So part of the project was they decided if we're not going to be there, it'd be cool to have some kind of a simulation for them to try and, you know, learn from. So they put out a call for proposals, right? So that's where you're invited to -hmm. say, hey, this is what we can do for you. This is our team. This is our budget, blah, 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 blah. And to be and it's a pretty time consuming process like these proposal documents are about 20 pages long they have to have like the cvs of the team the the you know what you're projected to do what games you've created in the past what's your vision for the project what's your budget all this stuff so we 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 spent weeks putting this together and i kept telling my partner you realize this is a complete waste of time right because <laughs> we are absolutely not getting this project this is the german government we're talking about here you know the and and so but she's she's you know she's been in the game much longer than I have and she's just saying no well let's just do it and she said rightfully it's a good exercise right and it's Mm -hmm. good that once we do the full proposal we can use versions of that for other similar proposals so it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel every time and we didn't have that we all of our businesses come from non-proposal you know contacts so this is the first Mm -hmm. time we put in she's done it many times before when in her previous studio life but as our company this is our first one So uh, we didn't hear from them in a very long time and, and past what was the starting point of the project. So we thought, okay, well, this is done. There's nothing, you know, we're not, we're, we're, you know, we would ask and say, Hey, how are things going? And then all of a sudden we start getting these emails that are asking very specific questions. And that was like, oh, they want to know more about what we, you know, this and that. And then that led to our getting approved for this project. And that would have been, I'd like to say, huh july i think and we were supposed to start in june and the issue is so they have funding right like they're it's all very regulated and they have a type of funding and their funding ends in december that means that all projects have to be tied up in december and if we're just starting the conversations in july that means i don't know anything about afghanistan i don't know anything about forestry so we've got to learn everything like all every factor and they have an expert that they give us to work with that we can ask questions and he sends us documents we did a Mm -hmm. ton of reading i learned a ton about that because you can't make a game without really understanding what you're making a game about right so so then we we spent at least a month researching and and figuring out what you know what kind of game is this like what are we doing is it going to be like a dialogue based game is it going to be like we put you in a situation and you've got to figure out how to get out of it and then we ended up landing on a simulation where we have like a map of a village we have different land types um you know different spaces where you put you know animals to graze you plant trees you have nurseries and then all the numbers crunch and you know different factors and then every 10 turns there's like an event like a flood or a drought and 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 that that has a negative impact on the land on your infrastructure and then you have to rebuild from these events that are either major or minor so all of the all of these ideas are percolating through the summer um, and then we get sort of, we, we present our sort of vision for the game in September at some point. I think it was like the first week or second week of September. They asked for a few little clarifications and changes. We did that. They, they gave us the green light. And then that's when we start getting. This is now the end of September, and that's when we get into the nitty gritty of like the numbers, like what is this value, and and you know just what I was explaining right. about the points, uh, and figuring out all of the details and refining. And then because you can't really start programming until they have like the full scheme of what you're what you're sort of right. attempting, right. Uh, and then and then so now we're just about to turn that corner. The programmer's already doing things that she can do. But uh, my partner and I are going on an intensive two-day sort of work period to kind of finalize a lot of those numbers and a lot of our projected sort of mechanics, and then they'll they'll get going. But this project's timeline is insane because because the I mean the original idea was that the game would be delivered at the end of December, and there's absolutely no way with the right. late start, like even with the start in June, it would have been tight. So what we've agreed upon is that they will pay us. Everything that we've asked by the end of December, that means that closes their budget, but we're informally committed to delivering not the final project, but what we call an alpha, which is an operational rough draft of the game like you can play through Mm -hmm. it's not polished, it's not perfect, but you get a sense of it. They want that in December, and then they've given us a few months after to polish, refine, and and fix it up, which we're going to need pretty desperately. So now we're in a in a major sprint to try to get a working game for them at the end of December.
0: Very cool. Um. So so what when you ha- I, I I sense you've got like governmental interest and and then nonprofit interest and all this mm. altruistic interest like at some point it's gotta become commercialized, right? Like who who's gonna pick up this game and how so? So much right now is like, all right, you tap into a certain source and you download and you play, or is it something that will be available in stores or who is the target audience? Are people in Afghan? um playing this game to build up their forestry or is it like really sensitive people back in the west that are wanting trees to be planted in Afghanistan like who's the audience
1: yeah great question so first none of these most of our clients there's a few that are for profit most of them are not for profit so we've done work both my partner and I with the United Nations uh, we 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 target NGOs. We want to work with NGOs. We've got a few potential NGOs uh, coming down the pipeline. We've we've just put in a proposal with another one to do a really cool project with them, which will be a game that's not digital, actually. So we have no. Sales in the in the sense that what we are is a service studio where if you want a game built, you come to us, we build you your game and you do what you want with it, as long as you pay us what we ask for for that game. We right. haven't ventured into creating our own products for market yet. That might be in our future. We certainly have some passion projects that we would love to do. We just need to get funding. But we've only been operating as a studio really for about a year. Um, my partner has been at this for about 15 or 16 years. and and a lot of our game, digital game stuff comes from her. Um, I'm more the sort of games and learning expert, and I'm I'm a decent game designer, and so I, I contribute in that respect as well. But she's the one that has, you know, all the artists, all the modelers, all the programmers, and you know, she's she's the one that knows how to how to manage them and what questions to ask and where to find holes. And, and she's teaching me. I'm learning from her as, as we're moving through it and in, in our in our partnership. So um, so most of so, for example, with the game that I just described. Um, it's really just targeted for the Afghanistan NGOs that are supporting reforestation. So we have five or six NGO organizations based in Afghanistan. Each one of them uh, moves go you know they they go into the community and they 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 basically start a process where they organize the community to be self-sustained. So you want people to oh, come on board, and then these communities learn what. They you know, I first they they're like, "Why would you want to plant trees?" So the NGO works with them to make mm-hmm. them understand because you those floods that are killing you, mm-hmm. well, those floods can be reduced dramatically by planting trees on the hillside, by planting trees along the canals, by planting trees along the river, by creating terraces. And so then they have to decide to, you know, devote some part of their collective energy to these projects. And that's what these NGOs are doing. They're supporting them financially sometimes with the, the, the knowledge, with finding seeds, all of this stuff. And so those NGOs also have to be trained. Like they have to learn best practices. What are the right trees to plant in what soils? What are the repercussions? And so they we we the organization that we work with has created those courses. Um, but they also felt that they wanted a little extra, something to kind of bring it all together, to really make them feel what it's like to to see the consequences of not doing it. Like the game basically says, if you do this stuff right, look at the consequences. Everything looks greener. The flood damage is reduced. If you do it wrong and you start grazing everything and not planting trees and degrading the land, well, everything is worse. Your droughts are more intense. The floods are more damaging. and, And you see that through the course of the game.
0: this is some really beautiful stuff, a great way to kick off a great conversation that we're going to have this morning. We're going to slow down a little bit um, in a good way, uh, just to add some context. Um, But wow, what a way to kick off a podcast on the world of gaming and making life a game. And, and all of the naysayers that would say, oh, that's all existing in the virtual reality that has no impact on the real world have just been kind of put at ease to listen a little bit more because we're talking about gamification as a way of making a very concrete, necessary impact on Earth and on the people living in and with the earth. So that's
2: some great stuff.
0: Um, we're going to kick off uh, this podcast.
2: Super quick question. Paul, uh, before we jump out of this to- this topic, I, and without assuming anything, is this game having to be translated into Pashtun or something or is it oh it, good question it it, in English
1: great great question Dari so it will be oh, Dari, Dari okay. yeah and yeah. part of our proposal we had to we had to drum up some Afghani translators as part of our proposal uh to uh, and and so yes and and we are we are consulting with afghani people uh and to make sure because a a project like this has a lot of cultural sensitivities obviously the way that we represent their life the way that we represent their homes uh all of that and it, and it does have a, a bit of a colonial air that we have these kind of North Americans uh going in and 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 creating an image of Afghanistan so the German government or the German agency that we're working with has been very you know sort of uh, meticulous about making sure that everything is being checked uh by our Afghan partners and making sure that what we're doing is is culturally appropriate
0: gotcha
2: carry on Carl
0: yeah, so welcome everybody to this uh, very special Origins podcast um, with dear friend uh, Paul Darvazi. Um, I've got my buddy of a lifetime with us too, Ron Green. It's amazing to have you just pop up on the screen and it's as if, um, what was it, 1997 uh, had never... Happened so long ago; it was just mm-hmm. yesterday. We'll get more on that here in a who little bit. Yesterday? But I, <laughs> but I wanna, I want our listeners to know a little bit more about who Paul is, uh, why he's on the show, and uh, we'll kick off from there, Ron. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, we are uh, very excited to, that you agreed, uh, Paul, to do this podcast with us. Um, and for our listeners, the gentleman who is joining us as our special guest today is an educator game designer, and researcher who keynotes lectures and writes and consults on the intersection of digital games, simulations, narratives, social structure, culture, and learning. Paul holds a master's degree in educational technology and a PhD in critical media literacy from New York's university's language, culture, and teaching program. He teaches English and media studies and is a founding member of the Play Lab at the University of Toronto, where he occasionally teaches a games and play class at OISE. He designed the Ward Game and co-designs Blind Protocol, an alternative reality game, to instruct high school students on privacy and surveillance. His case studies on the Ward Game and Gone Home are available on teaching pioneers visions from the edge of the map from ETC Press and Carnegie Mellon. And he recently authored a paper for UNESCO on how digital games can support peace, education and conflict resolution. He's worked at the U.S. Department of Education, UNESCO, Foundry 10, Students on ICE, Consumers International, iThrive, Alliance Numeric, Indelible Game, CyArk, and has participated in several international research projects. He's on the board of Take 21 Film Festival, an active member of the IGDA, Learning and Education Games Special Interest Group, and on the advisory board for Game Train Learning. Paul's work has been featured on NPR, PBS, CBS, Radio Canada International, The Current, Spark, The Huffington Post, Polygon, Kill Screen, End of Gadget, and Gamasutra, Ottawa Morning, Utopia. La presse, Zatica, uh, District Administration, and Mindshift. And Carl brought them here because they have a bit of a history well, that that
0: see, that is truly uh, formidable um, and important, you know, I'm going to take you guys back to a different time. and this is a. Some somewhere back in the late 90s um, in Santiago de Chile. Um, Oh, right. You're wearing it. I didn't.
1: I just noticed that. Yeah.
0: So (laughs) it was 10 to one. What is it now, Paul?
1: Uh, What's the score now?
0: What's yeah. the score now? I think now? you win 100 points, 100 points for, yeah. for bringing that, that that little that, artifact. Baby. You can see the ear yeah. artifacts, the concrete world here in the vi- virtual digital conversation. So, yeah, back in uh, Santiago, Chile, at Santiago College, um, as a high school student, um, and we've talked a lot about origins in this podcast, Um A beginning took place uh, when Paul walked in the classroom. Yeah, he was my high school English teacher. I don't remember what year. I just know that a lot has faded, and the memory of him and things that uh, I've learned and many of our listeners have been impacted by uh, started with Paul uh, entering into a classroom. And I I found out when we reconnected in about 2014— um, that uh, it was Paul's first year of teaching. Is that right? Oh
1: yes, I have a lot to say about this. Yes, it was. It was not just my first year of teaching. It's the first you were, you, you, and the, your six classmates because it was a very small class. I, I mean, I remember that first day in detail, and and it was my very first experience in a classroom. That when I and I still remember. I mean, I'll, I'm I'm going to add a little bit of color to this that uh, Carl and his classmates had a very attractive young female teacher who I believe her name was B. I only met her in passing uh, while she was leaving the class and I was entering it. And she was leaving the class and I was the replacement. And they didn't, particularly the boys in the class, were not too pleased by, you know, having this (laughs) attractive young teacher replaced by this slightly loud, overbearing, lanky, uh, you know, whatnot coming in. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was so scared walking into that class because I remind you, I wasn't a qualified teacher. I had not gone to teacher's college or received a degree. I had always hated school as a kid, always. I mean, part of, you know, you you gave me that really generous and fancy introduction, Ron, but underneath all those accolades (laughs) and names, there's just a kid who felt like an Mm -hmm. outsider and who hated school. And never wanted anything to do with it. And because of very strange circumstances, I ended up teaching Carl's class in Santiago, Chile. And what Carl may (laughs) not know, what Carl may not know is that the interview that led to that job (laughs) was the strangest interview I've ever had in my life, because Carl's (laughs) class had been abandoned, not by B, that... (laughs) attractive young teacher, but by somebody else who'd moved on to another job and they'd had a patchwork of people looking after them. And the school was desperate (laughs) to find an English speaking person to at least make a credible Kind of substitution until they can get right. the new person in on the job <laughs> so they found out about me through some weird series of connections and i wasn't a teacher i'd had a very very bad experience doing private tutoring where it was clear that the kids hated it and i hated it and i just kind of thought <laughs> well, i'm a terrible teacher so i don't you know so um they invited me for an interview at the school and i just said you know this will be fun but it's not going to work out right so i went and i sat down With a guy named uh, Doctor Minatoli, who was the (laughs) head of uh, Carl's laughing because it's bringing a flood of memories, a flood of (laughs) (laughs) right, Um, and 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 I sat down. And the whole interview, this is the funniest thing. I, I, I rare in the archives of interviews. The whole interview, I'm trying to prove to Minoptoli that hiring me would be a huge mistake. And, <laughs> and that it was really, I would highly discourage him of, of you know, sort of hiring me. And he was trying to convince me up and down, like, no, you'll be great. I know it. You're you know, you're exactly who we're looking for. So it was this anti-interview where I was trying to dissuade him, and then finally. Uh, you know, they offered me, you know what, I think it was like a three month contract, and it was relatively well paid. And I thought, you know, if it's terrible, it's only three months, and it'll be over. Um, and, and you know, it's really funny, because I didn't go to teachers college, I, I felt that it was such a sacred thing that I was asked to do. Like, I felt that hmm. I gave it this huge, like being a teacher to me felt like that is a lot of responsibility. Like I I'm guiding these young minds. And it wasn't, it wasn't something like, Oh yeah, I'm going to be a teacher. And I go to teacher's college and I learn this stuff to me. It felt like I was being invited to do something really big. And as a result, it was really, really scary for me. And I will, Mm. I remember the night before I was up until X amount in the morning, unable to sleep because I was so nervous and I will never, and this is a really funny detail. I remember clear as a bell walking down the hallway where I first opened the door and met Carl and his six classmates the first time (laughs) and feeling that there was a very, very genuine and legitimate, uh, Chance that I would poo my pants. Like I, I, I was, <laughs> I, I was literally fighting the this kind of bathroom urge because of you know the fear instinct that had completely consumed me. And I walked into the class, and and again, this is where B, the former teacher, basically introduced me to the class. You know, said goodbye to them and left. And and I, and my my distinct memory is that Carl had a classmate named Sanjay, and uh, and I, one of the first things I asked them to do. Was to kind of rearrange their desks for some reason. And Sanjay made a big show of not being helpful, like just kind of putting his hands on the desk and letting the other person drag it or some kind of show of, of insubordination. Uh, and I think that was part of the kind of anger at having lost yeah. B, who was yeah. much more, you know, sort of uh pleasing than me, I guess, standing in front of the class. Yeah,
0: visually pleasing, man. That's yeah, all. So
1: that's what it's about in high school. That's all, exactly. Right. So, and then, and then, um, and then something really special happened. Uh,
0: well, you know, hold,
1: I, I, hold on, hold on.
0: Yeah. You've, you've put a lot out on the table, and 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 really, we've invited you to our podcast, right, Ron? <laughs> <laughs> the score, like as far as I know, <laughs> we were above, right? Um, Paul, uh, can you? Because what's what's interesting in all of this? Of course, we never talked about this with that detail. We we've touched on a few things, but. Then somehow I became an educator and there, there, there's a story there too. And so I know those, I know a lot of the moments that you're talking about, like the, the facade of interviews for jobs, you know, like in in, having been in China, you're, you're, you're really desired and it's not really based on competency. It's based on what we can show the parents that we've brought in. And, and clearly all of that was going on when only <laughs> what a name, was he like the principal or something? No, I don't he remember. was the principal of the high school. Okay, yeah. I, I got something for you. Uh, it's all about the concrete, okay? So <clears throat> I wanna bring another concrete object into this, okay? Do you know what this is, Paul? Is, is that your diploma from
1: yeah. graduating at SC?
0: Yeah, well it yeah, it is. And and it's never been opened. I've never, uh, uh, never opened this. So because they they didn't let me walk. Uh, I was not allowed to graduate. And I think it was Minatoli like that probably made that decision. He probably has a signature somewhere on here. I hope it has my name. I've held on to it all these years. <laughs> I did graduate. Um, I, I, I we flooded the second floor. Um, I don't know if you were there at that point, but that got me in a lot of trouble. Um, uh, understandably, understandably. And, and, and and I remember the, 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 the beautiful thing about actually receiving this was that when I was allowed to come two days after graduation and pick this up in his office. And I remember he pulled it out of the drawer. He was kind of looking for it. He's like, here you go. And it was kind of like, you're done. I said to myself, I'm not done. And I walked down to like the the basketball courts and Pajarito, that was one of the guys that was uh, one of the cleaners, Pajarito en el Indio. See, these are the things that I remember. I could never for the life of me have remembered the name Minatoli, but I remember Pajarito en Indio. And 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 because all the chairs were set up on that uh, basketball courts, multiples, ones that they had at the center thing, when you would always stand up like it was like fucking Pinochet time and you would like salute the school and salute the country and everything that was going on. All the chairs were there for graduation and and they were cleaning up and the stage was still there. So I walked up on the stage and they all stopped and put their brooms down. And I said, Hey, make it out of the way. And they, they were all like, yeah, Carlito. <laughs> right. And they came That's up lovely. and gave me hugs. Right. Um, so I, there's not a lot of people that I can share that memory with, but with you in this moment, after all of that, you know, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a necessary aspect of what I know will be woven into our conversation, um, you know, today um, in that there's real stuff happening. And then there's all this other stuff that's not spoken of. And, and there's all this like faux you know, fake kind of stuff happening as well. And, and that's all part of life, you know, like, you know, here we are three married guys, you know, like family dads, you know, like it's all wonderful, but some people, you know, as, as there's a degree of public nature to each of us know some things about us but we all know the intimate parts and like you know like the 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 good the bad when it comes to like you know like you in that moment kicking off a career in education without knowing hmm. that it would be a career in midst of this Minotoli nonsense right <laughs> what, what was going on what were you doing at that time? Like, why were you in Chile? Mm. And, oh. uh, and and, oh, and that then,
1: question, that question has an answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And
0: and 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 I want you to lead it into kind of like where I hope we can maybe get, <laughs> but like uh, like what you, so you walk in, you take this contract, and 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 yet you were thinking like education was not part of your world, and then now it very much is. Talk to us about all of that in the way that you want. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, yeah, it was so uh, amazing to when we first I mean, it occurred to me as soon as we got on our call today, as soon as we started the podcast that, you know, everything that uh, Ron had just said about me, all these like publications and things that I've done and blah, blah, blah. blah all of that started the moment I walked into the classroom and I met you. That was, mm. you know, nothing before that really, other than my passion and love for literature, which was kind of the the one, my singular passion up until that point, uh, none of the seeds for that were present before the, that moment when I walked into that classroom that day and I met mm-hmm. you and your six friends. And everything has been consequent of that. And it was your class, I taught a few other classes that were much more challenging, but it's your class, those months together that made me fall completely in love with teaching and and made me fall, you know, something which went exactly in the opposite direction. When I left high school, I'm like, good it's never going back, right? Like I hated Where did you graduate high school? I went to high school in Toronto. Okay. Um, and, I, and I didn't have a nightmarish high school experience. I mean, socially, mm-hmm. I was kind of, you know, happy middle of the road, academically, happily middle of the road, N- didn't put a huge effort, just kind of had mm-hmm. my, my guerrilla system to get by and do well enough, but never overly dedicated. But in my younger years, in particular, school was really hard on me. We, we moved around a lot as when I was a kid. Um, you know, in really weird, diverse places that that I think socialized me poorly. So when I eventually was was admitted to Gen Pop uh, in grade two or three in a more normal quote unquote Toronto school, I was completely out of sorts with everybody else's kind of way of being, way of talking,
2: mm-hmm. and I
1: felt like a real misfit. And 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 not just with my fellow students, but with my teachers, I felt really misunderstood and picked on. Um, I didn't have a lot of support at home in terms of getting my homework done and getting organized. Uh, You know, my mom was a single mom. She was working two jobs. I would come home, let myself in after school. And, you know, I wasn't going to be doing my homework if I had other options. So that that was the case. And so I, I and then when I fell in love with teaching, really with with Carl and his classmates, um I wasn't sure if that's the direction I was going to go I didn't know what opportunities would come up in the future I was simultaneously to that job working I just started about the same time that I started teaching Carl I was working in expedition tourism so I was I had a really unique job where I was stationed in the southernmost city in the Americas which is a place called Ushuaia that is in Patagonia and I was running the is legit- that
0: beyond Punta Arenas yeah, it's south of Punta
1: Arenas. You have to, is it Chilean territory? What's that? Is
0: it Chilean territory? No, it's
1: Argentina. It's Argentina. Mm. The only What's it called settlement, again? it's called Ushuaia, U-S-H-U, uh, USHUIA. Uh, uh-huh. And the, and I, the only s- s- human settlement south of Ushuaia, other than Antarctic bases, is a small military outpost called Puerto Williams. That is on oh, Chilean territory, uh-huh, just yeah. south of the Beagle Channel. Channel. Mm-hmm. So, for several seasons, Antarctic seasons, which are essentially the summer holidays of Santiago College, I would be stationed in Ushuaia, and I and I ran logistics for three Antarctic vessels. That that they were expedition vessels that were formerly Soviet. Vessels that were spy vessels that were being used ostensibly as scientific vessels, wow. but they were actually they they were they were actually looking for submarines and also looking for places to hide submarines. When the Cold War ended, they the the all of these oligarchs that took control of former you know sort of uh, assets owned by the government and the KGB uh they started uh leasing these ships to entrepreneurs who were using them as small kind of 50 or 60 passenger expedition vessels to go to these really cool out-of-the-way places in Antarctica so I I I was doing that kind of as my summer or off-season gig while I was teaching at Santiago College um and I was undeclared like I was just kind of in in survival mode right like I was I was how old
0: were you when you went into my classroom I was 20
1: Six or twenty-seven, yeah, wow. twenty-six or twenty-seven. Right
0: there, like the return of Saturn. You, you familiar <laughs> with that whole no, thing, or I, you I, just don't buy no. it? No, I don't. I don't know anything about that. Well, like, why not share it? Uh, so, so th- this timeline between twenty-six or twenty-eight, fascinating. Okay, from an astrological perspective, Saturn is in the same exact place that you were when that it was when you were born. Right. Oh. And so it, 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 as you get into that, that becomes this very defining time in life. And here yet, once again, like without even like, there's a lot of stuff that's going on that we're not aware of that. Wow. That was happening. That was why I went into the classroom during that period. Um, it's it's unbelievable to hear that, you know, that, that was going on without without tripping out too much down that line. You know, my return to Costa Rica was exactly that same time, 27. Nice. And you look into people's lives at 27. There is something, um, you know, like it's it's no surprise that your life kind of found a certain connection that said, let's go this way. Right. It had spent the first 27 kind of doing whatever it needs to do in order to like, all right, with this composite of things, this is what I'm going to go. You know, like how beautiful to realize that not everything that makes sense, not everything logical, not everything rational in life has to have our consciousness of Mm -hmm. it in order for it to play out. There Mm -hmm. is a unconscious logic that is playing out
3: mm-hmm.
0: it's up to us whether or not we tap into it or not but yeah great great fascinating stuff
1: more. we speak the same language carl could not agree more could not agree more and it's awesome <laughs> it's awesome to tap into those connections and those patterns and those designs right when you get little glimpses of the design Um, whether it's imposed or existing outside of us is the big question. But even if it is imposed, right? Like even if our human mind is creating patterns where patterns don't necessarily exist. Our mind is a product of the universe and those patterns being projected by our minds are products of that universe. So they are existing, right? Like they are a legitimate part of our apprehension of reality. So I, I completely buy into that. I'm a very, you know, my I'm my religion is, is literature and particularly a few writers and, and they give coherence to my life. Like everything, I, I look at things very symbolically. Um, I look for patterns and meanings all of these things and I know that I'm not it's not necessarily that the patterns and symbols that I ascribe to the world around me are there it's my way of artistically maybe making sense of things in a way that makes sense to me to help me navigate the chaos of this world right um and so I think that that's kind of the same thing that you're saying by seeing sort of this pattern that at 27 there's this full cycle that's been completed and maybe that's where you launch this kind of significant chapter of your life and definitely that's an age where a lot of my even current you know sort of life was was in some way started at that point in my life so
0: well speaking of uh literature as a form of religion uh let's open up scripture uh, chapter one here everybody uh please open up your books to like uh, i think it was Minatoli that w- it said open your books this is what we had before you open your books open your minds and let's get motivated. Okay? So <laughs> anyway, that that that's really like when Sanjay listens to this he's going to know. Um so anyway, listen up. He started going into this nodding routine. You never saw anybody nod as much in your life as old Spencer did. You never knew if he was nodding a lot because he was thinking, you know, or or just because he was a nice old guy that didn't know his ass from his elbow. What did Dr. Thurmer say to you, boy? I understand you had quite a little chat. Yes, we did. We we really did. I was in his office for around two hours, I guess. What did he say to you? Ah, Well... About life being a game and all, and how you should play it according to the rules. He was pretty nice about it. I mean, he didn't hit the ceiling or anything. He just kept talking about life being a game and all, you know? Life is a game, boy. Life is a game that one plays according to the rules. Yes, sir. I I know it is. I, I know. Game, my ass. Some game. If you get on the side where all the hot shots are, then it's a game, all right. I'll admit that. But if you get on the other side where there aren't any hot shots, then what's a game about it? Nothing. No game.
1: Wow. I have a big wow for that because I know where it comes from. And I did not at all contextualize that passage, right? If we're talking about origins and I think back, you know, those are pages we read together in those first days and and talking about it being kind of the launching point for a lot of the stuff that I did after. It's amazing that that seed of the, the idea of game of life was planted in that passage. So kudos to you and well read too on top of it.
0: Well, I want to, uh, I appreciate that being my former professor. Uh, and I want to add a little <laughs> bit of my angle of of the whole story of that first encounter. I don't remember a lot, but many who do know me know the story. Uh, this passage, for those that don't know, is from Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And as a, my memory of high school, um, like you shared yours, um, very middle of the road, I was good at stuff as my mom would say um, you need to give him more. If you, if don't be calling me to this school, Minotoli, if you can't wrangle him, I'm certainly not. I'm in charge of the home. You know, my mom was in meetings like every week with Minotoli and uh, all those people (laughs) just saying, like challenge him more. Anyway, you did You, you, but you challenged me in a way that, didn't feel like a challenge. I, I, my memory and memory is a really interesting thing in terms of like how we remember things. Like I didn't even realize we were studying that as a class until you've affirmed that multiple occasions, but I'm still going to stay true to my, my invented story of how things went down. Um, but I, I thought that I was so far removed from the class that you had said, Hey, read this book. Which, by the way, uh, Catcher in the Rye is tattooed to my leg. Okay, like oh, I need to—I need to contextualize this, within which, um, it, there's a—I've got like this stack of books, uh, tattooed to my leg, and one of them is J.D. Salinger, and there's this guy climbing them, you know, climbing their knowledge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got C.S. Lewis there, um a lot of things from those beginning stages in my life and that made such an impact on me. Um, and, but my story of it all was that I kind of decided to give this book a jab and I actually have memories of in a very toilsome way, not enjoyable at all trying to get into those first chapters. And, uh, but really for some reason motivated enough to really try to get it. Like there was something in the way that you presented it that, that I was like, I, it wasn't being forced, but it was like, I should I should be able to enjoy the this. And if I can't, it's there's something wrong with me. And I wanted to get to that point. These are memories that I have, of, you know, 20 some wow. years. ago. Okay. So I remember, I remember thinking that Catcher in the Rye was about spaceships um, and some of them being about gadamets. Which I didn't know what a goddamn it was, um, or I did definitely didn't know what a Sanova bitch was. And I remember being <laughs> in, in the classroom, and this is like potty mouth, badass Carl, troublemaker, right? Having never read these words, <laughs> and I remember being in the classroom. And I said, like, "Are you talking about goddamn it?" like major major dipshit moment um in high school and son of a bitch and i was just like oh this book probably going to be cooler than i even thought you know and (laughs) history right but it was a it was a moment in my life where you know because of my very very dogmatic fundamentalist christian background you know like a lot of the books that i had read were of only one nature like i've talked a lot about that with with rom um how how hard it has been for me to move into the world of fiction let alone into poetry and so on and so forth higher forms of the written word and the spoken word um Because of an impoverished, like I read a lot, but it was always of one sort of narrative. And that really broke into the possibilities of what existed uh, beyond Narnia for me. So thank you for. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, like when I when I was thinking about all of this and and preparing to be, you know, together, um, it became evident that that life is a game. Um actually in 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 conversation with Ron before all of this, as Ron became acquainted uh with your work and, and the material out there about what you're doing and what you're involved in, um, uh, we were talking quite about quite a bit about gamification. It seems like you've been kind of sucked in like some of those pulpos in chile like -hmm. into this world of just video game as if that's gamification but really like your work with um um you know in the classroom of the ward um that that maybe you can share a little bit about um Mm -hmm. as context for all of this like right now we're not only talking about gaming there's a distinction with gamification which is when life really becomes a game, perhaps, perhaps not entirely in this Mister Spencer way in in, mm-hmm. in uh, Catcher in the Rye, but where where life is to be enjoyed and had fun with, and there are point systems, and actually putting trees on riverbanks um, in in Afghanistan can have its playfulness and also its regenerativeness. Mm-hmm. Um, life is a game. And, and I'd like you to speak a little bit towards that, um, mm-hmm. towards life being a game and having fun with it um, as a dad in your classrooms to where gaming is one thing, but a life as a gamer that makes mm-hmm. life as a game is a completely different world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. So many, so many great things. Um,
1: so The way that Spencer describes a game, right? Because there are many different types of games and many different ways to play games. So the game that Spencer is describing uh, to young Holden Caulfield is is the sort of That these are the rules that we set up at school. These are the rules we've set up as a society. And if you want to succeed, you need to play by these rules, right? But what he's omitting is that there are many kind of nuances to the word game. It's very slippery to try to define what a game is. You know, that's a rabbit hole once you start kind of thinking about that. And, uh, and his very narrow conception of a game and, and, you know, Caulfield sort of echoes that by saying, yeah, if you're a hot shot, meaning if you are somebody who is, you know, disposed to play this particular game well, it works for you. But if you're not, if you're not into school, if you don't want to be part of society, if you think people are fake, if you think the whole thing is a sham, then you don't want to be part of the game. Um, but what I think Holden is missing is that you can game the system. You can game the game, right? You can you can make it if you don't like the way the game is being played, then you make your own game, and you or you you hack the game so that it works for you, or that or that you can improve it, right? And I think that that's the part that I'm most interested in. And games are really powerful because, and you know, they they go to the origins of civilization. There's something essentially human about playing games but they're they're dynamics that almost um they're microcosms right when we're playing monopoly it's a microcosm of capitalism and and you know and and property ownership and all that type of stuff when you're playing risk it's a microcosm of global warfare if you're playing so they're, they're often kind of encapsulating life or a version or a vision of life in a smaller kind of um uh in a smaller system or a more reduced system So consequently, it goes the other way where all of the systems we create, because all of society, what it is, are rules and systems. Right. That's what society Uh is. We culture and society are defined by our rules of conduct, our protocols, our legal systems, our religious laws. And all those are rules, 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 rules. So that's why games map to life so cleanly is because games are all about rules. And therefore, there's that connection. I've always said that school, even in its worst manifestation, which is most schools, most of the time is a game in the sense that you're leveling up every year, right? You're moving up at the end of every year, there's a boss fight, which is like your big project or your final exam. Uh, Mm -hmm. you get, you get points, for for your various activities. And then you mm-hmm. you move through the game until you graduate, which is the win condition. And then you're sent off into your next sort of your next game. And and yeah, it, it fulfills the the general sort of parameters of what a game is, but one is it's not a voluntary game right because one of many scholars many game scholars says that one of the essential ingredients of a good game is voluntary participation that you choose to play but in this Mm -hmm. case you're you're actually being forced to play and that Mm -hmm. that divests it of the playfulness and the the other thing is is you know play is not necessary is not the enemy of efficiency But play is not guided by efficiency. But if you start unpacking the education system, which is, you know, a legacy of the industrial system, it's all about efficiency, right? Everything is structured to optimize how much you can pack in, uh, both in terms of space and time in the institution of school. And And that's killing the playful part of it, because play, you know, play has its own timeline. Play has its own inefficiencies, But arguably, the rewards you get from play are much larger from the efficient packing in of information that schools have become. and And we have this, you know, almost innate sense of of not just efficiency, but here's another really interesting one. And I'm I'm me estoy despistando. I'm going a little bit off the trail here. That's but, why we're here for the long term. Okay, and so so what, what's really important and, and fascinating is we're, we're 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 since a very young age, we're told like you've got to work hard, right, to achieve your goals. you got to work hard at school. Right. But mm-hmm. I would argue that what you're doing at school more often is not work, but labor. Right. Labor. And what is labor versus work? We've all done work that we enjoy. And it doesn't feel much like work it feels mm. satisfying right it feels right. like you want to do it like you know if we're building a shed with our cousin in our backyard and we're working hard but we're having a beer and chatting and listening to music and hammering right. away and it feels great right it feels right. like you're not like but labor is when work turns into an enforced burden so if you're working at a factory and you're putting a you know a bottle cap on a bottle seven thousand times a day that doesn't feel satisfying or fun or engaging or something you would choose to do if you weren't being paid for it. And that kind of enforced work is labor. And mm-hmm. what I say is that a lot of school is labor and not work. And, mm-hmm. and and a lot of that game of efficiency and packing information in and trying to control everything is all they're all industrial mechanisms that have turned learning into something which works for some people so those are the, the hot shots that holden is talking about but it doesn't work for a lot of people because human beings are naturally playful they don't like to be positioned into certain places for you know that, that form of imprisonment where you're sitting at a desk in a classroom for x amount of hours and you're not allowed to move in no version of our history as human beings before the advent of civilization did we learn or teach in that way way we were moving around freely talking intergenerationally picking things up from our mentors and watching our adults and being an active part of our community. That's what learning looked like. It wasn't a kind of a segregated petri dish where you're set aside and and, and packed with information so you can you know be part of a society in a way that works for society.
0: And, well, and 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 just to just to tag team you there a little bit, like even if we go back to moments in which you know, like, because because the problem with like like I see a lot of like my peers as parents when we get into these conversations is that it's as if discipline and and coercion has no place anymore, and because in the past it didn't, but really, like when I think about like. The farmer whose boy is ready to help on the farm, which was always, you know, like even from a young age, the responsibilities just grow along the way. There was this connection, whether they wanted it or not, between what they were learning now for what they would become in the future. Mm -hmm. The Petri dish analogy that you mentioned, there's so much that the three of us, let alone everybody that's listening, learned. That just didn't come in handy mm-hmm. so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm speaking of the impact of you helping me transition into a world of literature. That 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 made an impact. For as beautiful as Teacher Bree might have been, or whoever came before you, I have no memory of any impact that they had on my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it's that connect. And so sometimes in the past there there was moments of get out there and do that Mm -hmm. that doesn't sound beautiful or idyllic but it also was wrapped in with within that's your livelihood Mm -hmm. we'll need this for later on and and i think that's important in terms of like the things that we choose to enforce um because I, because i have a an apprehension of idealizing things too much as if as if somebody out there could be listening to our podcast and think to themselves if only i can make life a game for my kids all the chores will take place and it will just be a zen place of nirvana in our home once again and, and that's uh, not really what we're
2: addressing right no, no well there's there's also the the challenge of um so it's a game on both ends in a classroom. And you guys already kind of spelled this out in on the first day of class, right? Is that if if you have a population that's forced to be in a game that they didn't choose to be there, um, but it just happened that way, well, then the play is going to uh, to be their way of maintaining agency within a system that didn't give him a choice. So when when Paul goes into class on the first day, and uh, who was it was not moving, just kind of pretending to move his desk. Oh, Sanjay, Sanjay, Sanjay. right. So so <laughs> that's that's what Sanjay has, right? He, yes. He's like, well, that's so he's that's his game. And now yeah. you're the the teacher is the player, and yeah. and so often instructors believe, okay, well, yeah, it, I. I'm in a game, and and the game has been decided, designed, and and the architecture is set, and I'm a piece of it, and they're all the players. Um, but every 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 instructor that I know has had this experience where they go in and they're like, "Wait a second, you know what do you do when when you have players that are not playing the way that they're supposed to be playing, right?" Mm-hmm. And and because they're, they're that's. That's what they're gonna look for all of those, those loopholes. And mm-hmm. Carl admittedly was one of those students mm-hmm. until um your until you as a as a player you yes. have to respond to that yeah. and then grow yourself as ah, within, within your role as an instructor. And so so a lot of a lot of the work that originative does in terms of uh really helping to um to create pathways towards mentorship and, and really moving instruction towards mentorship rather than, mm-hmm. uh, teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just that the, the language shift there is, is like, okay, you're, you're a mutual partner in this relationship. Um, you're a player as much as they are players. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so ba- based on that, how are you going to, how are your your decisions going to inform your growth as mm-hmm. an instructor, in your growth, in the relationship, and u- unique mm-hmm. relationships with all, with with all the students, mm-hmm. um,
0: and I and I can see that quality now that you narrated a little bit about like what was going on and when I when I re- and I'd like you to share a little bit of of the ward um, for context mm-hmm. because I have it, but maybe our listeners don't. Mm-hmm. But but in in that I would say more public manifestation of who you are as an educator that that displays um, proneness towards life as a game. Um, you you had that without being fully conscious or articulate of it, you know, as a young first year, first classroom, you had that. You you came into the classroom, and, and I really resonate that with that because when I first came to teaching, which is when I met Ron, was after a life of touring in a punk band, moved to uh, Costa Rica and went into a classroom and confronted all of those same things. But, but I do now realize, and I can articulate that the success was on that willingness to play. Okay. I didn't win you over with that little gimmick. Hmm, I'm going to bring my A game tomorrow. Right. And and it's that playfulness that then establishes the authenticity required Mm -hmm. for a an honest relationship with students upon Mm -hmm. which we can all grow together because in this area on this playing field we're all playing Mm -hmm. even the ones that are saying that they're not that just want to hold the table and not move it around Mm -hmm. like eventually i'm going to win you over into this Mm -hmm. too but that notion has nothing to do with the impoverished leverage of standardized testing. Mm-hmm. See no. that's a completely no. different world to where to where and that's what that that I'm I'm trying to like parallel those two because one is saying as an educator as a parent we're going to play this game. We're going to play it out. Hmm, might not have gone good today, but we're going to play in that playfulness rather than the alternative which would be do it or do it like the only mm-hmm. approach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I,
1: it, you know, so much of what both of you have said reminds me of a book that I recently started reading. It's a classic in the canon of of, of um, game literature, and it's called The Well-Played Game by Bernie Decoven. And one thing I love, and it speaks 100% to everything we've talked about, is he says that the well-played game essentially is when you remember that the player is more important than the game right? Because uh, typically in most cases we make the games more important than the players, right? Uh It's all about winning. Doesn't matter who, Mm. what, what you have. We cut them because we're not winning. So in in professional sports, you win or you're out, right? Like it's all about the game, not the player. We don't care about the player. We just make sure the team wins and that we get that satisfaction. Similarly with school, in the game of school, we're much more concerned that everybody plays the game according to the rules than we are concerned about how the players adapt. Mm. And what DeKoven talks about a lot is that a good game, like when you're playing tag, Maybe you bend the rules a little bit to accommodate different types of players, or or when you're, yeah. when you're when you're playing any game, if somebody is somehow being left out or not participating, how do you bend the rules or play with the rules? Which kids naturally do, right? Yeah, kids always are modifying or making little changes, <laughs> yeah. and it's usually to adapt to the player community in some mm. way. Not always. Kids can also be assholes. We all know that, but they can, you know, they. <laughs> And, and I think that's what school, school's not a well-played game, right? School is the opposite of a well-played game where the game is the only important thing and nobody cares about the players, right? You right. have of course, sensitive teachers like you right. guys, I'm sure that, that, that accommodate that, 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 that have that iterative relationship. And I think one of the most important words that you used, which is so important to me is authenticity to being mm. your real self. Mm. And I have to say that I, I taught in a pretty privileged environment for 20 years, uh, whether Carl's school or where I taught in Toronto for almost 20 years, um, they're, they're affluent schools. They're not inner city. I mean, it was literally an inner city school because it was downtown, but it was a private school. So that type of thing. And, you know, And because I don't have a formal teaching degree, I wasn't able to teach in the public school system. And I never did get my teaching degree. I have my doctorate in education, but I don't have a teaching degree, right? And and as a result, I I was in this environment. But the really nice thing about being in that environment of privilege is that I could be myself. Mm -hmm. I had nothing to hide. I was always honest about who I was, where I lived, what I liked, what I didn't like, um, and, and often because of my own background, which is often the case for teachers that didn't have a good time of school, have a lot more sensitivity to those kids at the back of the class. They, they don't write them off, right? It's the teachers. I'll tell you right now, it's the teachers and I'm not, I'm, and I'm making a bit of a generalization and I apologize for anybody who doesn't fit in this category, but if there's lots of teachers who did very well in school. And they stayed in school because of any number of reasons. And they never left school. They were just it was just school, school, school. They went to high school, then university, then got their teaching mm-hmm. degrees and went back into school. Mm-hmm. And so their 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 mindset around school is, you know, they haven't been out in the world, they haven't married, you know, they haven't experienced different types of personalities. And sometimes you might be tempted to categorize or label people according to the ways that schools traditionally label people because you haven't seen those people in other environments. And that kind of labeling that affects the kids at the back of the class, the kids that don't want to participate, which a lot of teachers are like, oh, he's dumb, he's disengaged, he's lazy, is a fundamental misunderstanding of who that human being is sitting at the back of the class, right? And, and it's so harmful to their self-esteem, to their self-confidence. And, and and self-confidence and self-esteem is so much in life. Like as a teacher, your priority is to develop self-esteem and self-confidence. <laughs> That's your number
2: one thing, it's, right? It's your, it's <laughs> your lifeline
1: well that's (laughs) what it is right like if if you're killing that anything that happens after is inconsequential like you're number one so you don't you don't shit on the kid for not doing well you find the genuine and authentic things that they do well because a kid can smell bs a mile off so if you're complimenting him for something he's not good at a kid's going to be like i'm actually not good at that and your compliments are hollow but everybody has a shining light their moment their way of shining and and as a good teacher you've got to be immediately aware that when a kid does something right in a way that is genuine and authentic you jump on that and you celebrate that and that's a building block for self-confidence and 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 all those good things and that's that's what what's what's killing us and i've shed tears for this topic because it it it's 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 not only degrading to human beings it is is a a catastrophic result in our society because there's so many brilliant people that are sitting in the backs of those classrooms, so many capable people that just don't fit in the system, that the system is is crappy and they don't play by that game. And they're made to feel like they're the ones that are the problem. They're the ones that need to be fixed in order to to enter society. And that is wrong. And, And the damage that we're doing, it's not like a charity to those kids in the back of the class is that we're losing good people. <laughs> we're yeah. losing people that can make a difference in the world because yeah. if they were confident to be who they were, they'd go out there and do good things. Instead, mm-hmm. we're kicking them down, and when they get out to society, they just they're they're raising the white flag before anything's even started.
0: And uh, I'm I mean I can't but say that you know that that was one of many, uh, game changers for me, having you, uh, as a teacher, really. And, and teachers don't get this enough. It's such a privilege to be able to say this, you know, uh, unfortunately we're not here in Belgrade, Maine together, but maybe that'll happen. But th- in this way, being able to say, man, well done, like even at such a young age, you know, instinctual teaching, um, can only come with authenticity and you had that. Um, unfortunately, um, we've, we've talked a lot about how like going to school to become a teacher kills that potential. Um, and by you not having gone to any schooling prior to us, like you just came with real life authenticity. Um, I've been meaning to to wanna to pivot a little bit our conversation um, because you keep on hinting at a lot of stuff that we've never talked about it, but I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, Ken Robinson, um, who a couple of years passed away. Um, when I first met Ron, Um, Sir Ken Robinson, uh, he presented his work because I was like going back to my story of coming to Costa Rica, like the way that Ron and I met and and you'll love this because I don't think you know this tidbit, but I hired Ron, okay, that came with you know a similar amount of accolades uh, into like i was the minotoli i guess (laughs) at the time and so like he walks into this classroom head of the department in in costa rica and 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 like he's wanting to be hired and i'm like sure you want to work here okay like i just came out of a punk rock band um (laughs) you're very qualified for this position anyway um as time went by Um, I came to run like our, our, our teacher's lounge was just full of a bunch of old (laughs) hags complaining about their students. And I found it so, so nauseous that, that I would go outside. I didn't want to be around that, Mm -hmm. but I didn't actually know where to tap into for like how to make things better one, I don't know how, but Ron and I started sitting on the same bench, I guess. And I was like, well, I got this going on in my class. Like, what do you think I should do? And one thing led to another. Um, Our conversations got longer and longer. And, you know, here we are like probably 13 years into it and we can't stop talking about it all. Um, That's the richness of the dialogue. Um, he he said I was working with a ninth grade, I think, at that point in Esparza, Costa Rica. And he's like, well, why don't you read Catcher in the Rye with them? You know, here as an ESL or or he didn't. I don't think he introduced Catcher in the Rye, but he was like, what book has been important to you? You know, like, why wouldn't you do that? Because we are doing all of this ESL kind of like sentence target grammar mm. sort of thing like band-aid if you want to learn this then repeat this Parroting, you know and i was trying to sort through all of the nonsense but without uh, an educational background i could feel that this thing is not working it's mm. not authentic it doesn't feel good where do i go and he's like well, what what book was important to you in high school? And I'm like, what like these kids don't speak shit how am I gonna read King catcher in the right here you can't even go to a fucking library and find any book and 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 it, i I remember bringing it on my computer which now I see as a mistake but it's what I could do in terms of like just trying something really quick and I would project it and we worked through that book and to this date that was like this experiment on like, Seeing the kids and and Ron gave me all kinds of great advice. He's like, don't do that fucking like round robin and getting all your students to fucking read the book because they don't know shit how to read. He's like, you just read it and let that time be of immersion and let them just hear English and hear (laughs) like so many of them without knowing just became great bilingual speakers without the affluent background that we know of through Santiago college or whatever, like, but they really caught up with the game, Um, (laughs) pun intended uh, by just doing it. Right. And, and so anyway, As I'm meeting Ron through all of this, he's introducing different authors and different thinkers and whatnot. And one of them was Sir Ken Robinson. And I brought this up to Ron the other day in a podcast, and I kind of want to bring it up to you. Because so much of what you're saying sounds like what Sir Ken Robinson said in famous talks back in 2006. And this was my point. When I came across all of this, probably like 2009, 2010, it was already four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was revolutionary. And now I, and I invested myself into this. And here we are, 10 years after that, 12 mm-hmm. years after that. And I don't feel much has changed. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I I yeah. want to know from you because when you talk about 20 mm-hmm. years in this industry, mm-hmm. like how do you manage? Mm-hmm. To still be doing it, mm-hmm. where is your hope? What mm-hmm. is happening well? And why is the change so goddamn slow? Uh, uh, sorry, goddamn it slow. Goddammit <laughs> slow. <laughs> Son of
1: a bitch. Um, so it's even scarier than what you're saying, because a lot of Ken Robinson's ideas, which he 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 presents in such a genuine and polished way, have been circulating since the 50s, the 40s. Um, I could show you right. stuff that Marshall, Marshall McLuhan was writing in the 60s about how he envisioned education uh-huh. to be in the 80s. And and it's this beautiful model of education where kids are free and playing and learning and and, and you don't have these kind of stifling industrial classrooms and 80s came and went and nothing changed 90s came and went nothing changed and and it's 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 the sheer momentum of a system that is contextualized in a society that doesn't give it any wiggle room to move or change, and and the changes that are meaningful are changes to the system, not content. Right. So I can change the books that I teach, but I'm still report cards and attendance, right. and class calendars, and all those systemic elements are what really, you know, it, like push this 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 education system forward. Um, and, and what kept it alive for me, what, what became meaningful, particularly because when I, it's funny, you mentioned that when I first, you know, instinctive teaching, I, I was an instinctive teacher. I just loved literature, loved to talk about it. And all of a sudden I realized because that what you're describing about grammar and sentences in ESL, that was my life before I met you when I was doing tutoring. Right. And it was painful for everybody. It was painful for me, for the student. And I didn't get it. I didn't get that the, what I should have been doing is just having fun conversations with them and keeping it dynamic, right. not going into the minutia of grammatical structures in English that nobody remembers and everybody hates, and it's not going to give you an active language. <laughs> so you and I went through a very parallel process, mm-hmm. and it was only when that when all of a sudden I was in a you know in an advanced grade eleven literature classroom where I could tap in you know the very wise advice that Ron gave you, like hey, what book did you love? I, and then all of a sudden that opens the floodgates because something you feel passionate about um you can connect with the students with and they they thrive and they grow on that passion like sunlight like you are the sun that is the sunlight of passion and they feel it and they grow from that and and that's what the turning point is right all of a sudden then it's not like you're doing like what you think you should be doing but what what is an expression of your genuine passions and interests and that's definitely going to engage your students so it was it was a very similar thing to me was I technically the best teacher? I can assure you that I was not technically <laughs> the best teacher uh, that that it was it was kind of like a uh, you know kind of like raw force, raw something right <laughs> And it wasn't and it was really funny. It wasn't until I would say seven or eight years into my teaching career where I made a switch. Where where I stopped writing my my natural inclination to tell stories and get passionate about literature and and doing quite frankly a lot of talking and a lot of lecturing, which mm-hmm. which can be engaging, you know, like I, I I can talk fairly well and I can draw people in sometimes sometimes I don't, but it's not great teaching right it's not craftsmanship when it comes to teaching so i ended up doing a master's degree online that the met degree that ron had referred to earlier which was all about educational technology but they wove in a lot of things like you know philosophy of teaching different teaching theories and after that degree I definitely changed my game. Like I definitely, again, pun intended, I definitely started approaching my practice really differently. Still, I am who I am and I love to share and I'm passionate, but started experimenting more in the classroom. And because I was at a school that one didn't have a lot of oversight, um, Mm -hmm. which was more of a shortcoming than an intention, I -hmm. got away with a lot. Right. And I could do a lot. And and so when you asked me what I knew, I'm not Gandhi. I'm not gonna go out there in my robe and change education in North America, you know, like Johnny Appleseed moving from city to city. And and you know, like we have Sir Ken Robinson, like he's got like seven gazillion YouTube views, everybody knows what he's saying, hasn't changed a thing, right? Yeah. So so and 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 not deliberately, not deliberately, but what I started doing was not necessarily to change the system, it was as much instinctive as anything else. I started creating things in my practice that were very different than the way that schools could be. And then you've referred to the ward a few times, and I think that was the yeah. pinnacle of all my experiments. Um, yeah,
0: like, and, tell us, tell us a little bit of, of that, hmm. maybe leading into it, because because you know we we've made the context clear of kind of whimming it. Right. Um, when you came into my classroom, well, I'm I'm not sure what year it was that this ward thing happened, but uh, contextualize that and tell us a little bit about it and then we'll keep going from there.
1: So it was probably t- it was 2013. So that would have been at that point getting close to 15 years after I stepped into my first classroom. Um, And it was the culmination. The word starts with a throwaway line in an article that I'd read in uh, during my master's years before the word game was even a thing. And the throwaway line was, don't just think about using video games in your classroom. What would it look like if your classroom were a video game? And I was like, whoa, that is such a cool concept, but what does that look like? Like, how do you do that? Right. And, and there were no models forthcoming. Like I was doing more research and trying to find out it was nothing like it. So stored that in my memory. And it always kind of stuck with me fast forward three or four years. I'm teaching all grade 12 English classes. So it's their final year of school. It's their senior year. I'm in my last month of teaching these seniors English. And and what was interesting about this particular cohort is that they'd moved up with me. I was a middle school teacher when I started at this school and then I moved into the high school and this cohort had followed me from that transition. So I taught many of them several times. They were very known to me. Um, Mm -hmm. A bunch of them were new to the high school, but I'd known their families and them for a long time. And the last book on my reading list uh, was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is of course the award-winning film. And most people know it as the film, although the book is magnificent. I cannot emphasize enough how important that book is. And and I had never read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I read it one summer at my in-laws. I remember being on their porch in the backyard in the summer here in Montreal and and just kind of flip. And I was like, wow, this is an awesome book. I'm gonna throw it into my curriculum in September for sure. (laughs) And then I left it because I'd never taught it before. I didn't have resources for it. hadn't really done anything. And all of a sudden, it's the last month of school, and a few things are going on. One is it's senioritis, which means <laughs> seniors have checked out, right? Like they they've gotten into their colleges, that they, they've stopped bathing, they're wearing you know track suits or whatever's going on, like they and they and they have this almost god given right not to do any work anymore. Like <laughs> it's their privilege as seniors, <laughs> in the last month of school, that they're not doing anything, right? Uh-huh. And and in the best of cases, in the best of schools. Many students don't read the novels they're supposed to read. We know that, right? They go online, they get summaries, they talk to each other, and they hack their way through. And you can do very well in English and not read anything, right? You can just go yeah, online. Yeah, I mean, a... <laughs> and and so I was kind of despairing. And it was this night. It was such a funny night. It was there's so much more to the story, but I'm gonna give you the the kind of the the encapsulated version. I had a I had some pressure because I was doing a presentation at OISE, which is the school where I teach now remotely, which is the the Faculty of Education at the university of toronto we'd done a partnership with my school and i had to present on something and it was uh i was trying to put this presentation together and i had to start teaching one flew over the cuckoo's nest in a few days and i hadn't come up with anything and i knew these kids are not going to read this book like it's their last month of school they've checked out this book is and, and so what on earth can i do to get them into this book like how can i do it and i started thinking like as i was working on the presentation i was kind of you know uh i was multitasking I started thinking um, about uh, about what it would look like if they created artifacts based on the book, like art and posters and stuff, and they had to trade artifacts to get complete sets. And I, like my mind was going to these kind of weird places. and think what kind what kind of cool dynamic might 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 be at play. And weirdly, this is a weird kind of side note. Um, so there's an ancient myth in Ireland call about the salmon of wisdom and in Finn McCool, one of the great Irish heroes um, in his young apprenticeship, uh, was uh was working with a Druid whose name was Phineas I guess they they had an absence of name variety where you have Finn the apprentice and Phineas <laughs> you know I think Finn means white in Gaelic or something like that and and there's a there was a, an elusive fish called the salmon of wisdom right that 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 was in the river Boyne and and Phineas had been trying to hunt this fish down for years because if you caught it and you were the first person to eat it you would get all of this knowledge all of this wisdom Wisdom, right, and um and and uh what he did he caught it he finally caught it after seven or eight years and he threw it over to Finn his assistant and say hey Finn why don't you cook it up on the spit and and for me well and then I'm gonna eat it and all this stuff and while he's cooking it Finn quite innocently put his thumb onto the fish to make sure it was getting heated properly or was cooking properly. And it was sizzling and it burned his thumb and he put it into his mouth and he became the first person and Finn <laughs> McCool stole his master's kind of you know uh, knowledge. And, and, and in all the subsequent myths, which are extensive of Finn McCool, anytime he's in a jam, he sucks his finger to get the idea he needs to get out of it, right? He had this kind of moment of wisdom. So my mom was visiting the night that, uh, that, uh, that I, that the word game was born the night that I was struggling with this presentation and thinking about one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I was, I was in the midst of all this work sitting on my couch. My mom was puttering around in the kitchen and she'd gone shopping that day and bought this like really weird indigenous salmon right? Really weird. Like it was in a box. I'd never seen it before. And you pulled it out and it was a golden metallic envelope. Right. And then when you cut <laughs> it, when you cut this golden metallic envelope inside was this brown oil soaked salmon and it looked disgusting, right? Like it was all all <laughs> pink and brown and not like that pink, nice salmon. And, and, and so Um, At first, I was disgusted, but I don't know what drew me to having a little nibble of it. Like, I don't know if I have to make my mom happy or whatever, because she's wasted her money on this. And then it was like, delicious, right? And I'm just like, (laughs) and I, I, the whole thing, the oil... And I think I and and I think that salmon of wisdom story is a myth to really kind of speak to omega threes, right? Because when you eat fish that is rich in oil, it's rich in omega threes, and you get a brain boost. And I bet you the Irish knew this, I just for, through trial and error, that when you eat rich, oily salmon you probably got that boost and you do. I still feel it. When I put a, a salmon out on the barbecue and I eat it, I definitely feel smarter, right? I'm, I'm <laughs> a, whether whether it's, it's psychosomatic or not, right? Whether it's psychosomatic yeah. or not, it at least yeah. gives me the illusion yeah. of having a slight boost in intelligence. And so I, I, I guzzled down the salmon and it was really odd. It was like smoked by indigenous people out in, in the West coast of Canada. I never saw the package again. I looked for it desperately. And after that, consumption of this salmon I had this vision <laughs> later that night it was really <laughs> late at night it was really late at night I was stressed out I was thinking about one flew over the cuckoo's nest my presentation was tough and I was trying to put it together and then I had this vision I saw myself at my desk at school typing away on my laptop wearing a giant nurse's cap right and that vision gave me the word game like all of a sudden I was like I know what I have to do right I this (laughs) book this book this asylum because One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is about a men's asylum in Oregon and this authoritarian nurse that that is actually fundamentally well-intentioned who's trying to beat down the individual personalities of all these patients and drugging them and coercing them to make them fit you know, the society's mold. And she thinks she's doing a good thing, right? She's a military nurse. Everything's gotta be in control. Everything's gotta be in order. And I realized this is school. That what this (laughs) asylum is school. This is what everything that's wrong with school is what's wrong with this asylum. I said, why don't I turn my school into the asylum of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Why don't I for 30 days, their final 30 days of school, create the asylum world and whether they read it or not let's live the novel right let's actually live the novel let me let me try to bring as many elements of the novel and externalize them and finally create my video game that takes place in real life and it's the video game in real life of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and thus was born the word game and what's fascinating about this and you to know, talk about symbols and meaning and all of this the main character and one flew over the cuckoo's nest is an indigenous person named chief bromden from the west coast whose people were salmon fishermen Right, so just this <laughs> beautiful encompassing of of everything in one kind of nice meaningful package, and and so the game was insane. You know, no pun intended, and uh, and no disrespect. And it's a word that 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 is problematic in certain circles now, <laughs> but it was this thing where after the idea hit me, it became this kind of monolithic obsession, like this single minded obsession, where for days I did what I could to prepare but it was bigger than my ability to prepare. So essentially the day that the game started, I did, it was all half baked. Like it wasn't It wasn't really designed very well. And I remember that I, the first, first day that I ever ran the word game, I went into the school and I was so scared for what I was about to do because my students didn't know there was gonna be a game. Nobody knew anything. It was like a rainy Monday morning. They were like half asleep at their desk. They were in full senioritis. And i went in and put on a lab coat and started yelling at everybody and be, being like super controlling and at first it was like it, they were really freaked out like what the hell is going on here and then that's what started the ball rolling there were secret missions there were all kinds of dynamics they were spying on each other and anything i could to replicate the world of the asylum through the, the this game I, I that's what I was constantly thinking about how do I take this thing that happens in the story and how do I turn it into something that I can do And so that first run was my rough draft and a lot of like, it was so fun. The students were super engaged. several of them finished the books they did all of this work. everybody had a different experience. It just felt like the the you know the, the strangest most non-school thing that had ever happened to anybody, myself included and it felt so right. And it felt so successful. Like it felt like this is something like this feels like the way things should be. And I'm not saying that all school should be the word game all the time. It was just like this thing where all of a sudden everybody was invigorated because all the boundaries of normal school were broken. Right. Um, and, And then that became the template. And for four subsequent years, I kept improving and refining the design and 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 because the kids that graduated went on to way more interesting things than the word game such as you know prom and summer and girlfriends <laughs> and pot and drinking and all these great things that happened on your first summer out of school that the word game was great but they had you know as seniors they moved on to all that so there was never any institutional knowledge of that game being played and because secrecy was like a fight club thing that if you got caught talking about the game there were all these things that happened to you so nobody <laughs> so every year it was a surprise nobody ever knew that the game was coming and every oh. year they were ambushed with it and then yes. the end in terms of the coercion part once the game was on you were allowed to leave the game and do something else if you didn't want to be playing so it was an optional voluntary but you know activity and every year of the 60 or 70 players one or two decided that they wanted to take a more traditional route because they wanted full control over their grade and they weren't sure about this game thing. So I always gave an out and I, and it wasn't one of those kind of fake outs where the teacher says either play this game or write a 10,000 page essay. Right. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll play the game then. (laughs) I, 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 I worked, I worked with them to find something good that they could do that would be parallel and interesting and that they would want to do and not necessarily play the game. And thus the game was born
0: (laughs) phenomenal what a what a telling of that way to weave in your your practice um the mythology the the land in which you were teaching the land of salmon um the character of the book um it's uh it, it's it's hard sometimes um i i think as parents we also have those moments in which we feel like we really hit the nail and we're like just it just feels so good you know at the end of like x weekend and you're with your wife and you're just like everything that we wanted to happen with the kids took place like that was really good you know and it's hard when that's not the case um when when um like like there's so much risk that you're talking about it's nice to tell everything that has transcended over multiple years of reinserting it but you know like you went into that classroom as you did with me in mm-hmm. the uh, full of risk ready to play that that's an that's an a component of play is knowing that this could all really go wrong and exactly. then it's not at the end of the day uh, at the onset of our our, our podcast uh, you talked about that experimentation process and and being okay with that right being and, and adapting toward into the failures of you know our first attempts and the refinement that takes place what and and a lot of what I've been able to read on you and what we've discussed today and you know this telling and the ward and the UNESCO projects just feels like a lot of accomplishment and success how do you deal with those moments in which you and and oftentimes it's the majority at least in my case you know like as a as a musician and songwriter it's like for every one verse that actually is listenable there's all this bullshit right, right. like how do you 100%. navigate um those feelings and what are they those feelings you know within a system that doesn't seem to really be evolving and mm-hmm. can be really there's all this excitement happening but really like you're maybe one in eight teachers working with this group of students and you just feel impotent like what are those things that really nag you and and how do you make it through those things.
1: So um, that's really good, really powerful. Um, what before I jump to answer that, one one thing that's really important is that that first running of the ward game was one of the most exhausting, emotional, and mental things I've ever done in my life. Like when mm. it was over after thirty days, I, I the way I describe it is like I felt like one of those castaways on an island, lying on the beach, <laughs> where after the shipwreck, and, and you're just kind of waking up, going, "Oh man, I'm glad I survived." I like Honestly. Felt like it was- crazy. I I did not sleep for a month. I was stressed constantly, constantly managing 60 players, all doing like it was, it was, it was, but I actually think that something neurological changed in me. Like, I think that it was, it was a, it was almost like being in a ritual for a month, Mm -hmm. a weird hack together ritual that had a neurological impact because you know, the more I analyze it, like there's living it, and then there's after the fact. There's a few things that came out of that. One is in my rereading of uh "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest," I realized that Kesey's main character saves the patients with games, and and that's not obvious. Like that's not a that's not um uh, that's not what you would get out of it your first reading. But when wow. I reread it with that lens, I uh-huh. realized. Wow. All of the things that he's done to save the patients from the authoritarian nurse are either gameful or playful in nature, right? So it was almost like I was inadvertently channeling the message of the book that had been at least superficially invisible to me and only kind of manifested itself. So I give Kesey full credit for the word game. Like I, I was wow. just like his his conduit or whatever to mm-hmm. get that idea out. Um, and, and what what that created was this really cool paradox where, on one hand, on the surface of the word game, it's actually amplifying all the worst parts of school. That I had never been more of a tyrant. I had never been more authoritarian mm. on the surface, mm. right? But underneath that, the kids have choice, it's playful, there's all kinds, so it's almost like this Janus-faced ceremony where you're looking backwards at all the crap that has created school as we know it and then looking forward to what the solution might be right and and i think in 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 this ceremony that was the word game or at least the first and you know the first word game and then all the other ones were better designed and less ceremonious i would say it it planted all the seeds for all my future work beyond that like it was and it's really funny Carl that you zeroed in on that fearful walk to the classroom because those were really the two times like the two most scared I've ever been was the day that I walked into your classroom and the day that I walked (laughs) into the school uh to do the word game the very first time so that was so bang on that you that you said that and both in their own way that fear led to being life-changing experiences and and what's mm. really fascinating about that is i i have you seen um i'm sure you have bohemian rhapsody with that amazing actor ali malecki yeah
0: have you, have
3: yeah. you had it
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I've so, seen it. so whether you liked it or not right One, th- i heard ali malecki in an interview and he said when i was first approached to play freddie mercury i was petrified because that's a lot of responsibility right to 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 represent that guy to because he's right. he's so beloved and respected and and yeah. that's so much pressure on him <laughs> right and
0: and, and and the other thing is that he's his his new his subtle nuances are recognizable at a massive level like right. anybody can like like there's very few popular icons that you can detect from like the back side of their ear right and right. You're like pretty oh, mercury He's doing his Uh, thing. Oh, there. Yeah, he's at the live aids, right? Like, like everything about him is so iconic, every nuance that, like, of course, he's going into this not only the presence of who Freddie, but how recognizable it is and how anybody can be like, eh. Not the case. Not so much like like with with the Johnny Cash film that came out. Like people might be familiar with Johnny Cash's music, but not with his nuances and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. If anything, you know what I mean. Like it was a different time in history. There was mm-hmm. so much film and live performance around uh, Queen. By the time the movie came, oh, by the time they were a band, video was capturing that stuff. That to then make a movie of it you're making a movie of something that everybody's already seen in in right. it's live real performance like you have to imitate that which is in everybody's brain wow
1: yeah it's a lot of pressure and especially and he's and he's obviously a, a, like he's a craftsman actor right so he doesn't want to blow it and what he said is I've learned to recognize that every time I'm scared of doing something, it's usually a sign that it's something really important that I have to do. And, and that is such a great lesson in life because what it yeah. does, it teaches us to recognize that feeling of fear, not as a way to not to run away, but that feeling of fear is even further impetus to embrace. something right like to, to kind of say oh i've got that feeling that means that it's going to be scary but there's a lot to be gained from this experience because that's what growth feels like pushing boundaries feels that way taking risks feels that way. And if that's what you're going to do, it's actually a, a welcome feeling to have that kind of, you know, the trepidation, the fear, the insecurity that would inevitably come from doing something that's completely different or really challenging or whatever the case may be. So so I guess it's no coincidence that fear prefaced these two kind of significant junctures, right, in, 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 in the process. And then to your larger question about kind of the dark side or the, you know, um, I, I ended up going
0: as into that dark side. um, it just would would be wrong to not mention that we were we were chatting a little bit before you joined us, you know and and the very thing that I said to Ron when we got in, and the very thing that I've been feeling this whole morning, like we've been podcasting for a while now going through this series um that we've got in terms of material related to the certified mentorship program um, that I underwent, it's my schooling in what education and parenting and just being human is. Um, But, you know, we reached a certain degree of comfort that was hacked this morning. Mm -hmm. Um, And my first thing to Ron was when he popped on, I was like, man, doesn't it feel good to be nervous again, you know, and you coming on, you know, especially having been your student and with everything that you have accomplished, it's not a bad thing, but there's like, man, I hope really hope we nail it. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's that, that fear, that willingness, it's really interesting, like mythologically, um, fear and desire were poised as two gargamoils of sorts before you entered into, you know, anywhere that was worthwhile. And, and they were really one and of the same. And oftentimes we, we run from both of them without recognizing how to carry both of them, Mm -hmm. right? Fear is to be embraced and walked with just as much as desire desire is not meant to desire can lead astray we know that but neither do you want to run away from it you want to be able to carry and embrace and engage and interact with both of these um and i'm hearing that through our conversation that is the life of parents Parents Mm. is a confrontation and an interaction, being a parent with fear and desire, it never resolves. You never get the blueprint upon which to like build it and it's just going to happen. Mm. That's why the conversation is so important so that you can come back and try it again and become comfortable with that. Ultimately, that is what gaming is. To play games is an experimentation in failure and the reward of occasional successes.
1: Yes. 100 well said let's see, that that what way to tie it all together yeah i i agree 100% i never and i never never thought about that relationship within with fear and desire if i have i completely forgot about it but uh so it's really nice to be reminded of that or to think about things in that way because i think it's really important Um, and, And it helps us embrace feelings that may not always feel comfortable or that we may think are negative, but they are part of our kind of spectrum of emotions. And sometimes, you know, one of my big things in life, and I tell this to my speaking of kids, I tell my kids a lot is that one of the tricks in life is we we fall into narratives about what is supposed to be a negative thing in our life and what is supposed to be a positive thing in our life mm-hmm. right and 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 i feel that sometimes those those narratives are illusions that things that that seem negative actually will have a positive consequence right. and things that seem positive will have a negative consequence right and mm-hmm. and what i always think about is one is if i find myself in what feels like a negative situation how can I turn it around and turn it into a plus like how that's the trick like how can you get that minus sign and put that you know that that sort of uh, uh, vertical bar and turn it into a plus sign right how do you use I I think there's a saying like how do you use if you're in a storm on a ship how do you use those winds to get out of there even more quickly than you would have otherwise those types of things. And I think that's really important to to recognize that things that we have been taught to feel and think of as negative may not be that way. Uh, And that we can recreate our life parameters in ways that society is kind of trying to constantly tell us that things have to be this way. This is a bad thing. You shouldn't do this. And when you kind of take those ideas and throw them out and kind of have an authentic relationship with reality, sometimes things that are negative are actually can be turned into positives or actually are outright positive. If you think about them in a different way or in a different context. Um, So... Things like fear, then you know, to, to connect it to what we're talking about, not necessarily a bad thing. Fear can produce many positive results and can be the preface to many positive things.
0: Yeah, and it can be the the. I think that's the that's the trick is like being able to to plunge into what you were saying how can fear be that propeller of that which is greater it's it's very easy to look at fear and be like and understand its dangers just just as this is the brilliance of the fear and desire um uh, contrast or or analogy is that desire is so easy to paint within its, silver lined hues of perfection and that which is desirable may not always be good for you mythology teaches it in Hmm. the panora box and left and right everything you know like um even in the knowledge (laughs) huh the fruit of knowledge the first story in the
1: bible right
0: what i was going to say the salmon of knowledge right like the the desire to have the salmon of knowledge um did he lost it all and the one who got it was the one that didn't
2: desire he just happened to thumb right, exactly. right. in his mouth right
0: yeah. um yeah. the desire kept him from having it so you have to keep fear and you have to keep desire in check don't mm. run from them and don't plunge into them and be swallowed up by them all in good measure we know that great nuances to all of this conversation um i i i i i there's a there's there's a poem i'll, I'll read a p- piece of it uh i'm not sure if you're familiar with it Um uh, but but i got thinking a lot about the playfulness and the wisdom and the knowledge that comes through a playful approach to life mm-hmm. um it's a roomy poem and it's almost trite to mention that anymore because it's so popular but within the right context of a conversation it can be like huh that's not just throwing that out one this one really fits and so it it's the chic that like to play with children mm-hmm. A certain young man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That was good. Um, He said sheik, not priest.
0: (laughs) 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 All right. A certain young man was asking around, I need to find a wise person. I have a problem. A bystander said, "Ah, There's no one with intelligence in our town except that man over there, playing with the children. The one riding the stick horse. He has keen, fiery insight and vast dignity like the night sky, but he conceals it in the madness of child's play. The young seeker approached the children. Dear father, you who have become as a child, tell me a secret. Go away. This is not a day for secrets. But please, ride your horse this way just for a minute. The sheik play galloped over. Speak quickly. I can't hold this one still for long. Whoops! Don't let him kick you. This is a wild one. The young man asked, what is all this playing that you do? Why do you hide your intelligence so? The people here want to put me in charge. They want me to be the judge, magistrate, big nurse, and interpreter of all the texts. The knowing I have doesn't want that. It wants to enjoy itself. I am a plantation of sugar cane. And at the same time, I'm eating the sweetness.
1: I love it. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. it. It reminds me a little bit of token. I recently tweeted out this quote from J.R.R. Token where he basically said something to the effect of, you know, only one in a million are really suited for leadership. And typically, those are the ones that least want it. Hmm. <laughs>
0: really? Where where does that come Where, where did I don't do know. I,
1: I found it? it. I don't know how it crossed. I think it's a retweet. I think I saw it somewhere. I, I was reading The Hobbit with my son or listening to it. We were listening to the audiobook every night before bed. And I don't know. Something about my reading of The Hobbit, like maybe I looked something up about him and that quote mm-hmm. came up or or somebody tweeted it or something. But I really liked it. Um, because, Yeah, because I... You know, one thing that started happening, and this happens when you're in a place for a long time, but I definitely started feeling that you know, the more I started experimenting and pushing boundaries, the more the kids liked it. I mean, the kids loved the stuff that, that we were doing together. But my colleagues didn't as much, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and and there was a lot of, you know, you you're that that picture you painted of going into the staff room and hearing these people complaining about the kids. Um, that is a carbon copy of some of the people that I've worked with for a very long time. And and it really started putting me off, right? It just, it was playing into the, you know, I, it was almost like when I was a kid, innocently enough, I never thought it was possible for a teacher to hate you. Right. I, 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 I didn't, I, you know, kids would say, oh, so-and-so hates me, but I, I had such a kind of a sense, like, no, how could that be? Like, how could a teacher hate a student? Like, that's just not possible. Right. Like it was really naive. Um, and I thought it was just the kid being overly sensitive. And then now I realized, no, there are teachers that hate students. Right. And, and that is a reality. And I don't even know why they're in this gig anymore. Um, and it and it was, it was, it's hard, right? And and I worked with amazing, amazing teachers. You don't have to do the ward game to be an amazing teacher, teachers that were supportive and caring and took kids aside and 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 really kind of you know worked on the ones that needed work and just really good teachers. And there's so many of them out there, and there's so many different ways to be a good teacher. But mm-hmm. but the further, you know, that by the time I left teaching high school, which was more a circumstance of the pandemic, and that's a story in and of itself. Um, it felt really claustrophobic for me at, in those final, n- and not the kids. The kids were never like, it was almost like as soon as I walked into a classroom, it was like, oh, thank God I'm here now. <laughs> I'm right. in my oasis of happiness. And then the moment I left the classroom and was in the rest of the kind of ego-driven uh, you know, sort of like like BSE kind of you know, institutional factory floor, you know, world of that it drove me crazy. It started driving me crazy. And and in the school where I taught, you know, I had to wear a tie and 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 it all was all so stifling, and so and it was a physically small school, so that everybody was really close together in a physical space that was not really quite big enough to so it was a lot of people in a small space vying and 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 talking jostling and jostling. And, and, and so it was really hard. And, and now that I've kind of, you know, I'm in a completely different situation where I work from home, as you, you, you pointed out at the very beginning, and I can wear my t-shirt every day and my sweatpants and not have to worry. And I can go out for walks in the woods when I need to de-stress on my schedule. It's like, Oh, I can breathe. You know, Mm -hmm. I miss the steady paycheck. That was a nice thing that I had for 20 years, but I'm, and now it's more, I'm back to hustling again and trying to, you know, the company and trying to keep everything going, but I much prefer, I miss the teaching face-to-face with younger people. That's part that that's the part that I really kind of really miss, but I do not miss the institutional kind of, you know, realities of, of everything else. And I taught at a great school with really good people. And even then it was just, it just became too much at the end.
0: It, it. I mean, so much of this chic has that, you know, that, that he, he knows who he wants to be around. Um, yeah. I, uh, right now I, 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 I take calls for an insurance company from home and I've realized like it, within all of my moments of kind of, I've been, I've been contemplating a lot, like, am I content in this life or am I just complacent? you Know that's been my big thing, and I and I've come to realize I'm very content. I I love being home when the kids come home. Yesterday I made my first calzonas, they pretty much look like a big empanada. I mean, like really, like like the size of a large salmon stuck inside a golden bag.
2: Um,
0: but but just being able to be home and tidy things up and surprise on a daily basis my kids when they come home and my wife and so on and see them off in the morning so on. like contentedness um but within uh, how do i be content for those 40 hours that i'm giving myself to this thing and Mm -hmm. i realized that i love taking calls i love the calls if it's a day full of calls like my my biggest issue is when i don't have a call and i have like a staff meeting (laughs) <laughs> or I have to deal with like a resume that I had put in to kind of grow in the company. And I'm just not going anywhere. Like all of these things, but the calls with the customers, right? Like I have so many of my peers that like have left for other department and, 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 and it's cause they just don't like that call. Like, Oh, this old person, and we do Medicare stuff. So like these old people are always griping. Like I love, busting the chops on somebody that's old and gripe. I was like, what are you so gripey about? Let me help you. Let me carry that for you. And anyway, that playfulness with them on those calls, um, you know, re- reminds me so much of what you're talking about in terms of like that, just love for being with the students, but Ooh. that whole other thing is a nonsense that we don't care about. And, and really what, 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 happened with ron and i which gave birth to a school in costa rica and then the organization originated eve was that the two of us i hired him for this school and our conversations were so beautiful and so rich that the two of us created this proposal for the school to which we would be in charge like of kind of like this This outhouse for English where instead of us going to the classrooms, we would invite everybody over to this place that had a house and a kitchen and a farm and anybody coming to English came to this like English world, the English farm and, and the proposal had like diet and everything. And, 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 and it reached this, this was when it was all new to me and I was very excited and presented it to a board and in the board meeting that, that I talked for like a couple of hours, like they all fell asleep. (laughs) And so Mm. I kind of tapped on the table and woke them up and they're like, Oh, every time you open your mouth, young man, it really impresses us more. (laughs) Mm. And and so Ron kept on asking me for weeks thereafter, like, so, so what have you heard anything? And we never heard anything. So we both quit and we (laughs) we started up our own school where we could just do whatever the hell we wanted and have fun playing and right now you know if if i have anything to account for like for as much as like 10 years ago i would have said certain things right now for this podcast and for where i'm at in life it's learning to play life mm-hmm. is a game maybe not like mr spencer was thinking maybe not like holding caulfield was rejecting but life is a game. We're here to play. Let's have fun. Game has difficulties. It has fears. It has desires. Hold them in check. Make sure that when you've forgotten your way that you find a bunch of kids to be around, grab your horse on a stick and play like you're galloping around. Stay away from anybody who would want you to be the judge or the magistrate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's so valuable. I'm so impressed at the selections you made for today, the literary selections, that they've been bang on, right? I've never heard that Rumi poem. You say that it was widely circulated its first time, but it, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect to kind of encapsulate so many of the things that we're talking about. And so that's amazing.
0: Well, really, really glad to have you. Um, Thank you so much. for. I know you are incredibly busy, but you did it just as if I was a high schooler that asked you to stay after class. You haven't lost any of that. It's rich. It's authentic. It's beautiful. Um, The wisdom, everything that you've articulated on this cast will be enjoyed by everybody who listens. So really appreciate you being with us, Paul. Yeah, oh, thank, oh. You. thank you. Thank I you. I made
1: sure to have salmon this morning before I came on the show. So that way,
0: uh, <laughs> no wonder. Is All of our <laughs> listeners, the, the salmon stocks are going up. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in. This is the Origins Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Carl Emmons, a.k.a. Gluskabi, a.k.a. I don't know what they call me back then. Maybe Carlita. Belau, who knows what but um we had paul darvazi here on the show today and uh feel free to uh check us out on originative.org and uh, let us know what you're thinking about what you've heard today and uh, and paul probably- where,
2: where where is a good place for our listeners to uh to check you out where where would you direct them
1: yeah I'm scattered so I I have a Twitter account that I you know infrequently post to Uh, I have a discontinued blog uh, called ludiclearning.org which is uh, once I started my doctoral work I had to stop blogging but there's some interesting stuff in there Um, my my we, I'm, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Goldbug Interactive, which is our studio. Our webpage there has some really interesting sort of information and has a lot of the work that I've done has been woven into that website as well. And if somebody wants to reach out, they can write me at pauldarvazi at gmail.com.
2: Fantastic. Well, thanks everyone for uh, for tuning in. And um, from from the three uh, non-certified that are your hosts on this podcast awesome we'll say goodbye adios ciao ciao